Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland and joining me in the studio today is the illustrious Mr. Ben Bolin of Stuff They Don't Want You To Know and Car Stuff, among other things. Welcome back to the show, Ben. Hey, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Oh, man. Illustrious? Is it the pain meds from my recent doctor visit or am I moving up in the world? It's literally <laughs> that you're illustrated, actually. there's <laughs> true. Ben has had people mark all over him and crayon today. I'm not going to ask why I don't get into personal lives in this show. Well, you know, it's it's a big deal whenever I could be on the show, and I, I wanted to do something special. Right. My suit's at the cleaners, so I just <laughs> got a bunch of uh, Sharpies and asked people to go nuts. Yeah, it's kind of like body paint, but really <laughs> you know, super, like, on the cheap, because we just can't, we don't have that in our budget, honestly. Right, uh, not yet, but hope no. springs eternal. And it does. what's weird about having um, all these, uh, all these uh, colors and markers all over me is that anything I touch literally is leaving a trace. Yeah, and that kind of... You know, we were going to have a really in-depth conversation on how catalytic converters work, but once I noticed you doing that, I thought, why don't we talk about DNA forensics, like the traces people leave behind? So, uh, so that's why I decided to switch at the last minute. I hope you can roll with it. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And just in in you know. Ben and I have talked a little bit about our, our mutual interest in the true crime mm-hmm. uh, uh, discipline, the whole the whole true crime like field. And it turns out we're not the only ones in the office. There are certain people in the office who have a really deep interest in this sort of stuff. And so we thought, you know, it'd be kind of fun to explore the, the, the concept in different shows. So if you listen to all of How Stuff Works shows, you may have noticed things popping up here and there. Mm-hmm. That's not entirely by accident. <laughs> and so uh really was one of those things where as we all started talking, we're like, hey, you know, I would like to do something in that. And we can kind of mm-hmm. – it's almost like an Easter egg for those of you who who subscribe to lots of different shows. And you should let us know if you thought it was really cool. So it, from the technology standpoint, we thought DNA forensics would be really, really interesting to cover mm-hmm. and uh, to talk about how it actually works uh, what are the processes? What are some of the challenges? Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that people are doing with DNA uh, forensics now that might end up helping uh, like investigations in the future? Uh, where could it actually end up giving us a false positive? Because there, there is the possibility of that as well. But to start it all off, we really kind of have to lay the groundwork. Yeah, I was going to I was just going to ask you. I, I hate to be the uh the bad kid in class right now, but sure. but what what's what's DNA? Deoxyribonucleic acid, Ben. I, I was just going to say that. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's what it is. It's, uh, so obviously, you know, anyone who's had science class like a biology class anything recently, you know all about DNA, but you know, we got to build from the ground up. So mm-hmm. DNA is a molecule that carries the genetic instructions that govern the development, function, and reproduction of organisms. Uh, DNA is found in all of your cells. Essentially, an entire blueprint of what makes you you is in every single one of your cells mm-hmm. in the form of DNA. Uh, and the molecule is in that double helix form. So that's as if you were to make a ladder and then twist it into a twisty shape. Mm-hmm. That's the DNA double helix. Uh, the rungs on that ladder are made up of pairs of what we call nucleotides. 
Mm-hmm. All right. So each rung on the ladder is two different nucleotides that that bond together. Uh, there's uh, adenine and thymine. Those always pair up together. So okay. those are your two base pairs of nucleotides that will always join. And then there's guanine and cytosine, and those always join. And it's the sequence of these pairs that end up determining what makes you you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it could be uh, – and these pairs can affect multiple – the order of these pairs can affect multiple characteristics. Sure, right? yeah, absolutely. And also what's really interesting to me is that 99.9% of all the DNA that is in you – is shared with every other human. Like we, mm-hmm. we have 99.9% of our DNA is in common, which means the stuff that makes you who you are, as in different from every other person, makes up just 0.1% mm-hmm. of your DNA. But that's all it takes is that 0.1%. That's about 3 million base pairs that are unique to you, unless you have an identical sibling. Ah, ah, the old, uh, now this goes into, um, this verges into some good detective uh, fiction now. Yes. That old trope, the evil twin. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't me. It was my evil twin which, or, or, or evil triplet or evil quadruplet, really. Which, which we did an ill-fated brain stuff on, but it was great. Oh, my gosh, we did. We did. Uh, yeah, if you if you watch Brain Stuff, the video series, and you look up how twins work, Ben and I did a f- funny at the time. Experimental. <laughs> I thought I still thought there were parts of it that were funny. Honestly, Ben, I still fully enjoy it, but my sense of humor is very corny. So, <laughs> but if you want to see, if you want to see me and Ben dressing yeah. up in in two different types of outfits, like we're we're the the good Ben and Jonathan, right. mm-hmm. and then there's the evil Ben and Jonathan. We each have an eye patch. Yeah, John, Jonathan and I were talking, and it was it was strange because when we were talking about doing this episode, we said, "Well, how could we represent evil twins?" Like. Oh, eye, eye patches clearly, uh, because, you know, the, the goatee's not gonna work for right, us. Right, because it wasn't like neither of us were going to end up shaving just so that right. we could be the good twin. But both of us are the kind of person who would have an eye patch. Yeah, uh, and actually I ended up taking a quick walk to a nearby toy store to pick some up. Um, so at any rate, if you yeah. do have an identical sibling, your identical sibling shares your DNA. Mm-hmm. They are identical. Like yeah. the DNA, if you were to compare the two and look at those base pairs, they're going to be the same all the way down, right? So that's uh, one of the that's one of the exceptions. Uh, really, the exception. Mm-hmm. So our DNA can be found in uh, twenty three pairs of chromosomes. That's what humans have. Not all animals have that many. Some have fewer, and et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. uh, chromosomes are ribbons of protein, essentially, that have a strand of DNA that are wrapped up in that. And within each pair, one chromosome comes from your mother, one chromosome comes from your father, and that's what uh, you know. Those are the, the the ingredients that come together to create the unique individual that is you, mm-hmm. and or your identical siblings. <laughs> uh, so if we took look at each person's DNA and pay attention to the order of those base pairs, we get something like a DNA fingerprint. It is unique to that person, but we can't just look at one section. Uh, we have to look at several different sections, also known as loci in the mm-hmm. uh, in the parlance of forensics, to get a robust fingerprint profile. So just as we would look at a fingerprint and look for points of comparison 
to right. from from a from a fingerprint that we've gathered from a suspect, let's say, and a fingerprint that was left at the scene of a crime, you would have to look at several different points to make sure that all those points correspond to one another to say that there's a match. Same thing with DNA DNA forensics. You would look at several different locations along a strand of DNA and see if the same sequence of n- nucleotides were appearing uh, on both sets, mm-hmm. because that would tell you what are the statistical probabilities of the person that you suspect and the, the evidence that was left behind are one and the same. Right. Okay. So each time there's a new location, the, the more loci there are, the more certitude you have that you've got your catch. Yeah. If you were to say, look at just one location, then that would mean you would have a very, you know, there, there's actually quite a good chance, depending upon the sequence, that coincidence could could completely explain away any any uh, 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 duplication there, right? Right. So yeah. it could just be coincidence. It could be that this person just coincidentally has that same sequence. As you add more loci, that becomes less and less likely. Uh, FBI, the FBI uh, has thirteen that they ah, suggest. So thir- thirteen standard. specific loci. That's their standard, and that that results in about a one in a billion chance. That if you were to take all 13 loci and compare the two, mm-hmm. strength, you know, the, the, the stuff that was left at the evidence and the suspect or whatever's in the database, if you were to compare the two and they were to come up equal at all 13, it's a one in a billion chance that somebody else besides the person you're looking at possesses that. So. Seven yeah. other, yeah, six other people in the world. Yeah, it's like flash forward to that day in court where someone's doing that horrible reference joke and going, "So you're saying there's, there's a chance?" chance. Yeah, <laughs> and, and honestly, uh, people who are analyzing this stuff they speak in statistical probabilities mm. because you cannot say for certain true. that this person left behind that DNA. You can say like, "What is the statistical?" probability that they did. And then you look at other elements of the case, right? Like say, right. all right, can we put the person in that area? Because let's say that it's in um, a small town. Well, if it's a one in a billion chance and you know that the suspect was in that small town, that's a pretty darn that's, yeah, that's compelling. Yeah. yeah, because what are the chances that the other, one of the other six people in the entire world was also <laughs> in that small town? Right. Not good. So- uh, where do we get the DNA evidence from? Well, stuff that people leave behind, uh, pretty much anything that has cells, like living tissue that was left behind or living or, or stuff where living cells could have been in uh, before you being deposited at the crime scene. So right. stuff like blood mm-hmm. or saliva or semen or mm-hmm. skin cells, mucus, earwax, sweat, boogers. Yeah, all it's of not- that. All of that can leave behind cells that we can pull DNA from that. What about hair? Hair, not so much. Not 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 for traditional DNA. Hair follicles, yes. Okay. But hair itself is dead those are dead cells. Right. So true. you can do some some uh DNA analysis, but not the the standard kind that most people use in DNA forensics. Oh, all right. uh, fingernails, same thing, but fingernails often come with other tissue attached to it, and yeah, that's yeah. where you find the DNA. That's the good stuff. So if we want to look at the history of people actually saying, hey, why don't we use this this DNA <laughs> stuff to try and uh, help with investigations, you got to look back to the 1980s. 
Mm-hmm. When okay. a Brit named Alec Jeffries, who now you may refer to as Professor Sir Alec John Jeffries, FRS. Hang on. Yeah. I'm writing it down. Okay, good. Professor, Professor Sir, Sir Alec John Jeffries, FRS. Uh, that would be his full title now. Uh, he hit upon the idea of using DNA as a means of genetic fingerprinting. And he realized that the unique sequences of DNA could serve as a means to link an individual to a scene where DNA samples were found. And his process was first applied in the court system in 1985. In that case, it was an it was an immigration case. It wasn't like a murder or a rape or something okay. like that. It was uh, to uh, ascertain if the identity of a British boy was actually related to a family who had uh, originally uh, immigrated to the United Kingdom from elsewhere. And he did. Uh, mm. The first time it was used in a criminal case would be 1987. Okay, that was pretty the, soon after. Yeah, not not long after. And that was in a case. Uh, the the suspect was named uh, Colin Pitchfork, which is a heck of a name. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Talking about nominative determinism. Yeah. And he was arrested on suspicion of rape and murder. And he was the first criminal caught as a result of DNA screening. So. This was DNA screen that led to his capture. He actually confessed to his crimes. Oh. So the DNA didn't lead to his conviction. He confessed okay. uh, and he received life in prison as a result. So I wanted to talk a little bit before we get into some of the pros and cons about what actually happens with yeah. DNAs. Because you hear like DNA forensics and you're like, what, right. what goes into that? Yeah, this is a great thing to contextualize right now because uh, – there are a lot of fans and tech stuff who have probably seen and scoffed at the the various entertaining but inaccurate crime shows, yeah. Law and Order, SVU, CSI, CSI, exactly. CSI being the big one. Like there, there are, are are forensic specialists who say that CSI is probably one of the most damaging things to have <laughs> happened to their their career path ever because people have unrealistic expectations. Specifically, juries have unrealistic expectations, mm-hmm. which can hurt a trial case because juries will often want want DNA. Uh, data when it's not even relevant to a case. Right. Like, like it's not necessary for them to make a determination in a case, but they want it because it's one of those things that people associate with, oh, DNA gets you the, the locked in answer. Was that person right. there or were, were they not there? Um, just run the DNA, enhance the photograph. Yeah. I don't see what the problem right, is. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's pull up one of those three dimensional holographic images. <laughs> Minority yeah. reporter. Yeah, we're right just, through. we're just throw every single science fiction CSI trope in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so early, yeah, early forensic analysis, uh, actually used a process called restriction fragment length polymorphism or RFLP. And that involves taking a sample of DNA that has repeating base pairs. Like uh, they can repeat from anywhere between one and 30 times. Uh, They're called variable number tandem repeats or VNTRS. And what they would do is they would dissolve this DNA in an enzyme to break the strand at specific locations along that, the, the DNA. So uh, saying like, um, when there are this many repetitions, mm-hmm. this enzyme is going to break the strand at that point. So that way we can measure how long the strand of DNA is. Setting like an in and out point in yeah. editing. Yeah. So imagine that you've got like uh, a, a ribbon, right? Okay. And let's say that the ribbon is maybe three feet long. And you're going to cut out a six-inch segment of that ribbon. Use this enzyme and it cuts it at the very specific locations along that strand that you want. You do the same thing with the 
the material that was left behind at the scene. So let's say you've got you've got your your DNA sample from your suspect. Mm-hmm. You've got the sample from the scene mm-hmm. and you compare the two and you're essentially measuring them against each other, like literally measuring the length of them because it's those repeating pairs that determine how long that segment is. So if the two are the, about the same length or actually they the are the same length, length yeah. then you know or at least you you have a good uh, inclination to say that this person was the one who left behind that DNA. That's not really used that frequently anymore. Okay. But more frequently now we use a method called short tandem repeat analysis, which is more reliable, more popular. And in this method, analysts take a sample of DNA and they count the repetition of those base pairs along certain locations, the loci of that sample. So four or five base pair repeats, like where you get, you know, your, your, those nucleotide pairings I talked about, sure, sometimes yeah. those pairings repeat in a okay. sequence, right? Yeah. They look for, uh, preferably four or five base pair repeats. Segments. Okay. Uh, so that way, because it, it's less likely than if you were to have two or three in, in a row. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. The more you have in a row, the less likely you're going to find that exact same repetition in another, in an unrelated person's DNA. And they, uh, these are, by the way, are called tetranucleotide or pentanucleotide repetitions because of the number tetra being four, penta being five. Okay. Um, those are best in order to indicate an accurate match. So the FBI, like I said, says 13 specific loci to to find this. You would do this in 13 different locations along the strand of DNA. And if you were to find these uh, these base pair repeats that are identical in both in both samples, that's a really good indication that they belong to the same person. And this this investigation technique, uh, while it is while it's pretty solid. Yeah. And there's solid science behind it. It doesn't work in every in every case. It's not a silver bullet, and this is kind of some dark territory. Yeah, yeah. In fact, there there are a lot of reasons why uh, this uh, can be this can be problematic. Um, one other thing I want to talk about before we get into the the challenges, specifically things mm-hmm. like contamination and and chain of uh, uh, possession yeah, and all chain this of kind custody, of stuff. Yeah. Chain of custody. Thank you. Uh, before we get into that. Is to talk about, alright, so, you know, I, I gave these, these overviews of how they're analyzing the DNA, mm-hmm. but one of the big issues here is that often when you're in the field and you're looking for anything that has, you know, a, uh, remnants of DNA on it, mm-hmm. you may not have a very large sample to work with, right? That's true. So you got a tiny amount of DNA. How do you make sure you can do the tests you need with a tiny little amount? And the answer is, you duplicate the crap out of it. Uh, what? How? Yeah. Okay. So this is this is going to get super weird because I'm going to get into molecular biology and chemistry. But yes, darn it, I want to. Let's get weird with it. Okay. So they use a process called polymerase chain reaction or PCR to duplicate a specific region of the DNA in a sample. So this process was developed in 1983 by Kerry Mullis, who actually he won a Nobel Prize in chemistry for his work in this field. And what they'll do is they'll take samples of DNA. They'll take a, a, a string of DNA. So you've got your double helix, right? And then you heat it to between 94 and 96 degrees Celsius for a few Celsius. minutes. Okay. Yeah, so it's almost boiling Yeah, uh, for a few minutes. And this is to denature the sample, which means that the DNA straightens out, so it's no longer a twisted ladder, it's a ladder, mm-hmm. and the rungs split apart. 
So those base pairs split and you get two strands, uh, two half strands of DNA. All right. So then you end up uh, changing the temperature. You lower it to between 50 and 65 degrees Celsius for a few minutes. So that first one only takes a few minutes, too. So you lower it down to 50 to 65 degrees Celsius for a few more minutes. That allows the left and right primers. These are sm- uh, small sections of DNA mm-hmm. that have matching nucleotides to the two separated pieces that you've created. Think of them as almost like half zippers. So you've got the right and left half of a zipper uh, on either, like they're they're spreading out. They're, they're, they're apart from one another. You've Mm -hmm. got a small section that interlocks with each side because that you've got the, the, the complementary base pairs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those will then connect to those sections. Now that's only a tiny little, Part overall part of the the, the full DNA, mm-hmm. yep. but um, they then raise the temperature to seventy two degrees Celsius for a few minutes to allow the TAC polymerase. Now this is the material that can then build and synthesize new DNA to the two separate strands. So if you think about it like a video game, okay, all right. So you get your little you get your little segment that's locked on to the half ladder of mm. DNA, the the stuff you started off with in the first place. At one end of that, imagine that you get a little bitty blob. Okay. All right? yeah. That little bitty blob just builds the corresponding rungs and goes down the line rebuilding the DNA. Mm-hmm. And it does it on you know there's one on both sides. There's a primer on each half strand of DNA. So at the end of this process, you end up with two strands of DNA. Ah, okay. I see. Now you started with one, but because you've used this molecular biology slash chemistry approach, you've been able to duplicate it. And then you repeat that process. So you do it again. Those two become four. The four become eight. Mm -hmm. You see how this expands very rapidly. You do it over and over. So that way, even if you started with a very small sample of DNA, by the end, you've got plenty to work with. So you don't have to worry about, you know, we had... One little drop of sweat at the scene, and right. and we blew it on on a test that didn't work out. You don't have to worry about that. Can, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be like uh, emotionally or mentally a nine year old here, Jonathan. Okay, but can we can we make it a booger? I just love picturing us as cops or like right. No one, no one knows who stole the vase. We have only this yeah. single. The mysterious picker has struck again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're in. Yeah. No. I'm to- well, we weren't talking about urine. We were talking about boogers. <laughs> All um, right. You got me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but this is. But this is a great. That w- that's a great explanation of how this occurs. Because given that you are essentially destroying the evidence every time yeah. that you you conduct this kind of this this kind of investigation then being able to reproduce it is is fundamental it's key yeah it's absolutely key because again if you do not have very much of that material mm-hmm. then you really have to be careful and there are a lot of things that can complicate this and that's kind of where we were leading to a little bit earlier mm-hmm. there are a lot of reasons why you cannot just say that dna forensics is going to solve you know, 99% of the, the crimes out there, as long as someone's left something behind, because even though it's versatile, even though we have this amazing capability, life is weird and things can go wrong and they can go wrong either accidentally or on purpose. Mm-hmm. So one thing that can happen is multiple people could be involved in a uh, an incident, a right. crime of some sort. Yeah. And so the more people who are involved, the harder it is to 
be absolutely certain that the DNA samples you're working with all link to a specific individual. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, there are currently some uh, changes in the way DNA can be handled uh, in cases, court cases, actually to the point where it's in the legal case sense uh, in Texas and other places as well. And so forensics labs are having to put in greater restrictions because uh, forensics analysts would go in to testify in court cases and say, there's a one in a billion chance this belonged to someone else. But if you start to factor in that there is more than one person's DNA found at the scene right. and the contamination issues that result from that, then people would say like, all right, well, really, it's more like one in a thousand or one in a hundred. And then at this point, you might say, well, the DNA evidence is not strong enough for it to be a compelling argument Mm -hmm. for the guilt or innocence of a person because there's enough. Like if you're in a really dense urban area and you say there's a one in a hundred chance. Yeah, that's, you know, it's it's hard to say. That shouldn't introduce reasonable doubt. Yeah, in the that mind the, of I was going to say that it doesn't meet the burden of reasonable doubt. Yeah, and, but and then you have to try to chase down all the other possibilities. Right, and that's that's if there are multiple people involved. Sure. But even if there's not multiple people involved, obviously you have to be very cognizant of the possibility of contamination. Yeah. Okay. We we can talk about this a little bit because we this is something that you might not see on Hollywood as often as you see it in real life. Yes, exactly, Jonathan. So let's say, you know, the let's say you're the detective, right? And Noel is the prosecutor and I'm the uh, I'm the jabroni at the scene who was supposed to pick up the stuff and bring it. Right. right. Yeah. So your 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 job is to actually go in and collect the evidence right. before anyone else can go through that area. Right. Yeah. Because as soon as you introduce other people, then you've introduced other DNA mm-hmm. that can be left at the scene. But I've been having a uh, I've been having a crazy time at work lately. Sure. And yeah. I've been I mean, cutting corners a little. And okay. Every, everybody yeah. knows. Nobody said anything yet because it's not a big deal yet. But here's what happens. Uh, while I'm on, while I collect the evidence, let's say I get blood samples, and I'm on the way back, mm-hmm. uh, I stop at cookout because my diet is as much of a train wreck as my life is. Gotcha, sure. And right. uh, I'm not judging here. And because I'm personable, mm-hmm. I shake hands with six people as I'm walking back into our building. Right. Okay. I don't wash my hands, uh-huh. and I also uh, kept the sample for some reason in the bag from cookout. Yeah, that would uh, there there might be a chance that that was encountered some form of contamination from the right. scene to the point where you get to the lab, and then you you run the DNA. Yeah, right. After and I'm, the I, test. Well, clearly the suspect was a roast pig. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, the suspect was a roast pig, or even more dangerously, uh, clearly the suspect uh, the suspect may be someone that already pings in our database. Sure. Who uh, just got out of prison for grand theft auto and right. now works at a cookout? Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, that that's a. It, you know, it's, it seems like it's a convoluted example, except for the fact that this is the sort of stuff that can happen. Right? Yeah, it's not. I would say it's possible, yeah. but that one is not plausible. No, no. But but the example you give does show that there has to be great care. The 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 people who come in to collect the evidence have to do so before there can be a lot of disturbance of the crime scene because the more disturbance there okay. there is, like I said, the more chances other people will leave behind DNA. 
uh, skin cells or, or um, sweat or blood or whatever it might be. Uh, it might be that there were other people who were involved in it who uh, have no or, or, you know, people who maybe the person who stumbled upon the scene right. left something behind without mm-hmm. intending to, like cutting a, a hand on a on a piece of glass or something, letting mm-hmm. themselves in to see what's happened. Sneezing on a tissue even. Yeah, even something as simple as that. Uh, so there's there's that. You have to be aware of contamination there. You also have to be con- aware of contamination through the moment you've collected it all the way through the testing phase. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's where the chain of custody comes in. By the way, if you ever see people like putting stuff in plastic bags in order to preserve it, that's pretty much a, a, a fiction because plastic uh, will – will contain moisture, right? Mm-hmm. The, anything, any moisture that's in the bag will stay there and moisture can, uh, can, uh, degrade DNA samples. Right. Yeah. So usually they're actually put in paper. So it's usually a paper envelope or a paper bag that's quickly labeled. And then there's this chain of custody that must be, uh, documented through the entire process till it gets to the lab. And then at the lab, even at the lab, they have to be very careful with the equipment they're using. They have to make mm-hmm. certain that it's completely clean. And that way you don't end up cross-contaminating from a previous test into your current test. That's happened yeah. a couple times. There have actually been a couple of That's cases. Insane. Yeah, there was a case where uh, there was a victim of a crime and there was another crime that was committed. And the initial DNA test results of the crime that was committed came back with the victim from the other crime as a positive. And then they realized that the reason why that was happening was that there were two different DNA tests that had been performed. Mm-hmm. And the victim from the first one, their, their DNA had not been completely cleaned out of the system before they started doing the next test. Yeah. And so they were getting these false positives. And they knew it couldn't have been the victim because the victim was the victim was victimized. The victim right. was not capable of committing that crime. Um, so it was already like one of those things that proved that there was an issue here. And in almost every case, in fact, I'll, I'll go ahead and say the the vast majority of cases, yeah. this has to do with a person uh, either mistakenly or purposefully not following procedure or not making certain that uh, that everything is on the up and up rather than the process itself being a failure. It's, yeah, it's, it's a human error, either intentional or otherwise, mm-hmm. introduced. Typically. Um, and so another thing that you have to worry about is whether or not someone has purposefully introduced contamination. DNA. Mm-hmm. There have been cases where in order to try and either uh, uh, to hide one's involvement in a crime or mm-hmm. to implicate someone else specifically in a crime – People have left behind samples of DNA in order to throw people, throw investigators off the track. Whether, again, whether it is to protect yourself, Mm -hmm. like let's say that you committed the crime and you leave behind the DNA of, you know, your, uh, your, your hated cousin so that your cousin takes the rap and you don't. Ah, he's such a jerk though. Or you're an investigator and you're like, well, there's this really awful guy and we want to get him for this crime. Uh, we really like him for this crime, but we don't have the direct evidence for him. However, I do have this DNA from a separate incident. I can leave this behind at the crime scene, collected, uh, and therefore we can finally get the guy. I'm pretty sure he did it anyway. I mean, you you know. know, solid, solid, sixty-four percent sure. Yeah. <laughs> so that's again, this is not something that happens all the time. It's no, not no. not something that's even 
prevalent, but it's it's one of those things that you have to be aware of. That's why these things like the chain of custody is so important to maintain. I have a question. Sure. Uh, and I, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here. No, please ask. But I, I, I was kind of foreshadowing this when we were asking about uh, hair follicles. Yeah. So – the the it sounds like the home run for uh for DNA testing would be something as you say containing living cells so yeah. uh, blood bodily fluids stuff like that but if that's a home run the kind of stuff that people are much more likely to leave behind would be things like hair follicles or flakes of skin yeah you know so. What what's the deal with that? How how does that work? It's still the same uh, same process in the sense that these are things that can leave behind uh, traces of DNA. Okay. Like as long as as long as the uh, for ex- instance, let's say that you have uh, you're at a murder scene scene and you right. are you are investigating. One of the things you're going to look for are uh, traces of any skin under the victim's fingernails because okay. that that's a an indication that the victim fought back against his or her murderer mm-hmm. and may in fact have samples of that skin uh, underneath his or her fingernails. Mm, okay. And so you can collect that and then do the same process I was talking about. You can extract the DNA from those cells and then do the same process to duplicate that DNA and then run it either against a suspect's DNA or, or Use a database. We mentioned the databases ah, briefly. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about them? Yeah, let's do that because there are a couple of different ones. There, there are state databases. Uh-huh. There's a national database, mm-hmm. and then there's the FBI's database. Right. Uh, so these are all databases that uh, contain the DNA information of various people who have been. Uh, booked for specific types of crimes. Right. So not every crime. Don't worry. Uh, the FBI does not have your genetic blueprint because one time you purposely parked in a handicapped spot. Right. Although Jonathan and Noel and I do judge you for that. Yes, we think you should definitely never do that. If you don't, if you do not have a, a, a the handicap a label, uh-huh. then don't park in that spot. But no, uh, it, these are specifically pretty serious crimes right. where that's really the only way. That they uh, that that the state or federal government is allowed to uh, to collect a, a DNA sample from you to mm-hmm. use in this database. And they've got a lot of people. I've got some statistics here. Too. Yeah, please hit yeah. me. Okay, so uh, let's the let's go with the big one. All right. Okay. the The big one here in the states is the National DNA Index or NDIS. Yep. Uh, that's the that's the feds. That's the FBI. It contains a little under twelve million offender profiles, specifically eleven million eight hundred twenty two nine hundred and twenty seven. It has two a little over two million arrestee profiles and uh, a little over six hundred thousand forensic profiles. That's as of June uh, 2015. If you visit the FBI's website, you can learn a lot about their biometric analysis, which does also contain print work. It's it's mm-hmm. sort of a mixtape of all the stuff that they could use to investigate. And here's the thing you can do if you live in the U.S. and you would like to feel a little bit less comfortable each day. Okay. it's There's a breakdown by state, 
so you can see how many offender profiles are uh, are located in your state. Here in Georgia, in our case, it's 295,938. Considering the population of Georgia, that is a significant number. Right. Uh, you can uh, see the forensics profiles, the arrestees. Uh, you can also see the number of investigations aided and labs participating. Now, uh, one of the things I want to point out is that you know, this is also goes back into the the drawbacks or the challenges mm-hmm. of forensics is that forensic labs can get really backed up oh, with this stuff yeah, like the so backlogs good. can be can be crazy yeah because while I I you know I mentioned that process just for duplicating the DNA that can take a couple of hours to do that process uh, and then of course you've got all the the cleaning of the material that has to happen in order for you to be able to use it again mm-hmm. that's not that doesn't even involve the actual analysis of the DNA that tends to require a forensic specialist to do this. It's not like it's all automated. Uh, although there are more and more automated systems that help, Mm -hmm. but generally speaking, it's, it's sort of a, a, an augmented approach where you still have a forensic expert, uh, do the, the look, you know, they're doing, they're looking at the DNA to look at those base pairs and actually make certain, Visually, that they are in fact identical. Yeah. Uh, so it takes a lot of time, and meanwhile, while you're doing all this, more samples are coming in. So there's a backlog that starts to build up, and depending upon the area and the number of labs that are available, mm-hmm. it might be a very serious backlog. And there was also a pre-existing backlog because if we look at how recently this occurred and off air, uh, we had talked about this in the course of your research. Yeah. You sent in some great stuff about cold cases. Yeah. So there was already a built in backlog for this technology and there have already been cases of people who were in jail for years, decades. Yeah. Who were innocent. Yeah. Yeah. Where the DNA evidence ended up clearing them like it could not possibly had been that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, actually, that's when I say that there are some serious restrictions in Texas about this multi-person DNA approach, it's specifically so that there is every attempt to make certain that innocent people aren't incarcerated. There is a huge obviously there is a huge uh, pressure on law enforcement to right, yeah. to assign guilt and uh, and bring somebody in for particularly awful crimes, mm-hmm. and it, there's an enormous pressure because, of course, the community wants to feel safe. They want to feel that something is being done. Right. That has to be balanced against making sure you get the right person. Yeah, so, yeah, because uh, we know that we live in an age of instant gratification. Yeah, things should be uh, right. Immediately and right the first time. Right. And uh, and right now. And right now. Yeah. Yes. The three rights. Yeah. <laughs> but right. unfortunately, the wheels of justice. Uh, how's the old saying go, man? They grind slow but exceedingly fine. Yes. As opposed to go round and round. That's, oh, yeah. That's the wheels of the bus. I was thinking. I always get, that's, you know, we would be terrible lawyers. Yeah, we would be. <laughs> uh, actually, I know I would be. I remember participating in a mock trial in school and not knowing what the heck I was doing. <laughs> what was your, what was your role? What was your role? I was defense and it was terrible. Oh, no. It was terrible. I did not want to do it. I was, I was, I was bullied into it and I, it was awful. I can that, see you doing like a judge or maybe a bailiff who's over it. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> like sit down. <laughs> yeah. No, I was, um, uh, 
my my client would have gotten the chair. It was terrible <laughs> for a very minor offense too. That's how bad I was. So anyway, getting back into yeah, yeah. DNA forensics. Uh, so yeah, you mentioned cold cases. I, I've got one specific one I'll mention, and it's not. It's one that has not been. Um, seen to completion yet. In other words, there there hasn't been a conviction yet in this case, but it does show how how far reaching this can go. So in December 1995, uh, the body of a young lady named Crystal Lynn Bez, uh, Bezlanowicz was found um, along the Provo River in Utah. Uh, she was 17 years old when she was uh, killed and she had been sexually assaulted and murdered. Uh, perhaps bludgeoned to death with rocks. That was what the police believed at the time. Now, the original investigator of the crime uh, was a guy who became the the uh, deputy sheriff, I believe, but uh, Todd Bonner uh, decided to continue investigation even long after all the leads were drying up. Like, they just could not find any leads. Uh, and in 2013, a lab was able to extract what's called touch DNA, Okay. It was left behind on a granite rock that the police had believed was used in, in killing this young lady. And uh, the lab used a vacuum instrument to pull this touch DNA off the granite rock and then put it through this analysis process. And the results ended up matching DNA from a suspect that people were interested in but had no direct connection to the crime. The suspect's name was Joseph Michael Simpson, and they got the sample DNA mm-hmm. from a discarded cigarette butt. Ah, he had okay. tossed aside a cigarette butt. The, the cops scooped it up. They tested the DNA. They found a match. They arrested him uh, back in 2013. Uh, he has a previous conviction for murder. Uh, he had actually been out on parole for eight months before eight months. before Bislana Witch's death. Yeah, so he had been in jail for several years but got paroled. And then uh, eight months later, uh, Bislana Witch was dead. And he's been linked to this and arrested for the crime. Now, that being said, the last I checked into this case, you know, that was back in 2013. The last I checked into this case, it's still not, it still hasn't been tried. There's been... Wow. Uh, request for more evidence on the prosecution side, uh, including uh, an actual um, DNA sample from Simpson himself to confirm that the findings are, in fact, accurate. So, in other words, not just from the cigarette butt, but from Simpson in custody. And then there's also uh, a request to get a print sample because of a partial print that was left behind on the victim herself. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, this case is not one that's like cut and dry and it's definitive, but it does indicate that this approach is able to start pulling up connections that otherwise would have been unlikely or even impossible to make. And this brings us to this is just a sidebar. Sure. That's okay. This brings us to uh, a dangerous thing. And, you know, of course, that I, who can sometimes be a cartoon of myself, am, am required to mention this. Okay. Uh, what do you think about the idea of blanket DNA sampling? Or they're taking every citizen, you know, some prominent members yeah. of the UK legal system have advocated this for all British citizens, and Kuwait is uh, doing the same thing. Well, let me put it to you this way. Okay. There's always the argument that some people will make that if you're not doing anything wrong, then what do you have to fear, right? Well, here's sure. what you have to fear. I'm going to tell you. Okay, good. So 
There have been at least a couple of companies that have shown that through a little bit of your DNA, they can do a very similar process to duplicating DNA, which means that they can synthesize your DNA, which means then that if your DNA can be synthesized, it could be created and dropped somewhere and you had never been to that place. Oh, wow. So all of a sudden you get a summons for some horrendous crime in uh, Iceland or something you yep. say I've never been yeah this Iceland. is the weirdest thing because I've never been there but, but this is a 100% match to your DNA wow, there's a one that. in a billion chance that someone else did this um, and you, you know, that's, that's a thing. Like that's, we're, we're in a world where technologically it is possible to do this. Mm-hmm. Now, is that likely to happen? I don't think so. It's definitely like, in, it's in the realm of possibility, but not plausibility. Yeah, However, exactly. as long as it's possible, then I would argue that it is too invasive mm-hmm. to demand from your population that everyone submit to DNA, like the submitting a DNA sample. And, yeah. Um, yeah. What about, well, let's take a step further. What about the idea that there would be, what about the idea that this stuff, which is, you said a blueprint in yeah. some ways also it's, it's similar to metadata. Sure. Of a, of a human yeah. Okay. Let's, I can see where you're saying. Go yeah. on. Yeah. So the ability then to build this enormous sample size, let's say the entire population of the UK, I think right now they're only at maybe 5% of the population because you have to get, you know, you have to get pinched pretty sure. much. Yeah, uh, yeah. So if they had this enormous sample size, then they could start comparing and collating and analyzing this stuff on a larger scale such that they would be able to possibly, again, possibly, not plausibly, yeah. uh, predict, um, not epigenetic trends, but but predict the likelihood of someone incurring a certain disease or something. Well, we're we're getting into more of a genomic sequencing at that point. Yeah, we're getting and, into Gattaca. Yeah, yeah. When you're when you're getting into genomic sequencing, it's it's much further. It's much. It's a much longer process because, the, again, this is very close to when they call it genetic fingerprinting. It it makes sense to call it that because you're really just looking at the physical resemblance of two strands, right? Like like two drawings. And there are two drawings of ladders. And if the two drawings of ladders are the same, then you know you've got a one in a billion chance of it not being that yeah, person. Yeah, that's a really good point. So that's a lot different than going through and identifying things like which genes do what. I mean, we still don't even know, right? Right, exactly, yeah. So in case you guys have, are not terribly familiar with, with uh, genetics, the uh, genes can be pretty complicated things. Think about like a giant switchboard, okay. right? Yeah. You've got an enormous switchboard and there's like a thousand switches on it, little metal toggle switches, mm-hmm. the classic up-down toggle switches. Unlabeled. Right. Unlabeled. The, you have a bank of light bulbs in front of you, also unlabeled. You flip one switch and one light bulb comes on. You flip a second switch that light bulb stays on. Three other light bulbs come on. You turn off the first switch. Only one light bulb goes off. And you start thinking, okay, wait, wh- how is this? How really? is this well, that's the thing about genes is that they – it's not so simple as to say that this one gene mm-hmm. is in charge of this one trait. Right. It's It can be much more complicated where it's a, a, a selection of genes mm-hmm. that some are active, some are not active. Um, so because of that – even if you got all the DNA from 
an entire population, mm-hmm. you might be able to say, well, this one person suffered from a particular inherited disease. Let's examine the DNA and then compare it to other people who have suffered from that same disease and see where the points of comparison are. But that is, I mean, it's a monumental task because you've just, it's beyond taking 13 points along mm-hmm. a strand and comparing the, them against a second sample, right? It's, it's a, it's another, it's almost like a, a, an order of magnitude greater in the amount of effort that you have to take. I, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. And that, uh, that assuages some of my dystopian <laughs> yeah. predictions. I do have one other question. Okay. All right. So we talked about in, uh, identical twins. Yes. Right. Uh, there, there is another, um, there's another, possibility where a person could get pinched with the wrong DNA and still convicted. Are you going with a clone? Uh, Uh, What's your (laughs) – Well, there's there's another possibility. Wait, maybe not. It's not the same as identical twins, but it it throws another monkey wrench into this. Okay, sure. Uh, uh, Chimeras. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. Uh, All right, well – I want to hear your thought process on this because this is not something I specifically looked into because chimerism is not that – It's super rare. Yeah. It's not it's that common. Super, it's like an episode of SVU for that to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, wh- it, it's true though. It sounds crazy. And uh, you guys talked about this on uh, one of your other shows, right? Yeah. On Forward Thinking, we talked about uh, chimeras and – yeah, it was one of those things where, where the more you talked about it, the more the more – like unsure I was that I was reflecting reality because it seems so weird. It seems very, very strange. So it's a person composed of two genetically distinct types of cells. Mm -hmm. So you might have, um, I I think the first time it was discovered, it was related to blood type, right? Yeah, I believe so. I believe you're correct. Uh, So somebody had more than one blood type, which is already so trippy to me. Yeah. I just felt like to do the... To do justice to this topic, we would have to mention that that is one of those very, very exceedingly rare cases where DNA testing uh, is not, again, a silver bullet. Yeah. So you could, in a bizarre, like, this is almost like a science fiction novel approach, right? Yeah, like to the point where you're like, for this to work, so many things would have to fall in line perfectly that you might as well say it's impossible. But imagine that you have... A scenario in which you have a chimera and DNA is left behind at the scene, but it's only one type of the DNA. Somehow. And then the sample they get is somehow just the other type of DNA, thus exonerating right. your, your perpetrator. Um, or practically, the, yeah, there's no, that's impossible. The only, <laughs> the only way that that could really affect it is if there were somehow a chimera on the, Involved in the scene and it became a contaminating factor. Sure, yeah. Because then they would say, well, uh, aside from the victim, it seemed, it appears that there were three people here. Yes, that, so that would certainly, suspect? that would certainly cause problems, right? That would certainly uh, cause confusion in the whole process. But it's and, also so rare for someone to be a criminal. I think it's already, yeah, begging, beggaring belief, right? Right, so, like, like, like you, you already have, like, if you think of the population of people who have some form of, of that, you know, the chimera uh, DNA thing going mm-hmm. on. And then within that population, what percentage of those people are are, are master criminals? Are, yeah, are, <laughs> are committing these sort of crimes. 
it's got to be pretty pretty oh, small number. Oh, right? I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. I just had to bring it up. No, no, it's fine. Like, you know, it's it's you know. But what if? <laughs> so, uh, oh, one other thing I wanted to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I almost yeah. forgot about this. So, did you read up about the um, the technology? Of reconstructing a person's face using just DNA material. Oh man, as it the, blew my mind. Yeah, and, and you like you you had sent that to me off air, and I, I was initially skeptical when I was looking at it, but uh, so I'm freaking out. It's it's called a snapshot, and it's from a company called Parabon. And snapshot, what it's what it attempts to do is take the information from a DNA sample and create a essentially a police sketch. Of a person, a three-dimensional uh, uh, representation of what a person might mm-hmm. look like. Now, when I say might look like, you got to be super generous with this because if all you have is the DNA, if right. that's all you have, like you don't have any uh, any knowledge of what the person's face looks like otherwise, how old they are, how old they are, or their height, or anything, what you'll be able to do is probably approximate their skin tone. Uh, their ethnicity, their gender, at least their biological gender, the um, their hair color, uh, their eye color, that kind of stuff, whether or not they have freckles, that kind of thing. Uh, but beyond that, you're not going to be able to tell their age. You're not going to tell their height or weight. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't tell how heavy set or thin they may be. Right. How you don't know how how much uh, like what sort of wrinkles would you need to add in if they're yeah. you know if, if they're they older? Yeah, you wouldn't know any of that. Uh, and you wouldn't know their skull shape. Like, you wouldn't know their face shape, right? Like, oh, the okay, DNA yeah. wouldn't. So, so what you could do is create, like, a very generic looking person, but with those traits. So, it may not be so useful in the sense of using this as a means of trying to track down the suspect. There it may not come in handy. Where it might help is if you have unidentified remains. Uh, So let's say you found uh, the remains of a person and you're able to extract some DNA information, but you're not able to ascertain the identity of this this person. Uh, This would allow you once if you have the person's like skull, like if, if that's part of the remains that are left behind, you then know at least the dimensions of the skull. And there are also other technologies that allow people to approximate what a person's face looks like based upon their skull shape. Mm-hmm. So combining those two where you you say, all right, this is what they they probably look like based upon the, the shape of their skull. Plus, here are their characteristics that they had according to their DNA. Then you might be able to create a few different looks for that particular individual that might help in identifying who that person was. Yeah, and that that I think is the most tremendous possibility of this technology. Sure, You're absolutely right, because we're seeing already that the study of DNA and and the the application of this sort of science has fundamentally changed uh, the nature of crime and investigation. Yeah, I, to the point where again, it can affect juries uh, and their and their uh, perception of a case. To the, so, so it can be a frustration, right? Like if you have, if you have other lines of evidence that clearly indicate that the person accused of the crime has committed it, but because there was, there was no DNA evidence Mm -hmm. or maybe there was some problem with the chain of custody, that can create enough doubt in a jury's mind 
a jury that's been conditioned to believe that DNA right. evidence is the end all be all, yep. that it can, it can cause problems, uh, in that case. So, you know, this is, this is the thing is that human beings, we're messy, right? Yes. Like we're, we're not just messy in that we leave DNA behind. We're messy in the way we try to process information. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, you know, when you go through an entire process of when a crime is committed to figuring out who potentially did it to apprehending that person to then trying that person for the crime to then deciding whether or not they're guilty. I mean, there's so much stuff going on through that whole process that, you know, honestly, I think we should have a whole podcast devoted to it. Uh, you know what? I think that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not talking about an episode. I mean, we got to have a podcast. Like an entire show. show. Yeah. Not an episode. A show specifically dedicated to this kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, I completely agree, and we'd like to hear from you if, yeah. if you agree as well. You, If you like this stuff, you can check out um, – oh, Jonathan, I want to put you on the spot here, he okay. says, as he puts you on the spot. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, w- would you like to come uh, look at some stuff like this uh, with uh, Matt and Nolan and I over on Stuff They Don't Want You to Know? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Certainly. Okay, well, you agreed on air, so that yeah. counts. That's like a pinky promise. Here, here's the thing is that if you were to poll – the How Stuff Works podcasters and ask them, would you be interested in occasionally hosting a show about crime? I think an overwhelming <laughs> majority of us would say yes. Yeah. Like, here's the thing. It's the quiet ones you got to worry about, right? Right. Scott Benjamin, crazy interested in this stuff. So crazy <laughs> interested. Yeah. And uh, he'll be uh, coming up on your show a little bit later, right? Yeah. I'm going to have him on and we're going to talk about uh, Volkswagen and the scandal about Volkswagen's uh, method of cheating emissions testing. So we're yeah. going to we're going to go into great detail. That's going to be in a couple of weeks. So you guys keep an ear out for that. But uh, I, so we'll, it'll be crime. It'll just be yeah. corporate crime. Right, in that case. right. So, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, obviously, guys, you got to check out stuff they don't want you to know. Check out car stuff. Check out all the videos that Ben <laughs> works on, brain stuff, what the stuff. These are great shows, and uh, you know if you are not familiar with them, check them out. Because if you like this, you're going to love those. That's uh, that's uh, a guarantee. You're too kind, Jonathan. I appreciate it immensely. I'm glad I grew a little bit of face scruff so you can't see me blushing. <laughs> uh, I hope that if you are checking out and enjoying tech stuff, that you are also checking out some of Jonathan's other work. Uh, we, we work together on a number of, of weird – not just the get-rich-quick schemes. No, but, but those two. And our harebrained inventions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> boy, let me tell you, we can boil an egg, a six-minute egg, two and a half minutes. That's yeah. how good we've gotten. Yeah, it's still poisonous, but, you yeah, know. Yeah, no, okay, yeah, you can't eat it, you but you can boil, boil it. it. <laughs> so uh, you can also check out, I, I really, um, I personally am a fan of Forward Thinking, both the video and the audio series, uh, and it is Worth your time. If you ever want to uh, laugh your keister off, you can also check out some of Jonathan's work on brain stuff and what the stuff. Yeah, you can even watch us be twins. Oh man, you I, might you might not want to. You, might. I, you know what? I still like it. I have fun I, with it. It I is it cheesy. It is very cheesy. I mean, I'm you know if you if you find cheesy humor to be totally cringeworthy, then you probably don't want to see it. But if you want to hear me make like the worst James Bond villain style accent possible, 
Oh, I love it. All right, guys. If you have any other suggestions for tech stuff, whether it is a topic or a guest host or someone I should interview, anything like that, or you just have comments about this particular episode, send them to me. My email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. I use techstuffhsw at all three, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 